everybody and welcome to I think it's episode 27 of the Reset Show. Today we're talking about agile change management which is something that is I know going to be really fascinating and we're joined by the wonderful Melanie Franklin who Katie will introduce in just a second but just in case you're new to the Reset Show um, the Reset Show was originally started uh, during the COVID lockdown to, to really, um, I guess, use the opportunity of doing things differently in the world of HR, the world of people, the world of culture, thinking about how we can use the opportunities that we have to uh, disrupt and uh, really make some positive changes. So we have lots of different guests talking about lots of different aspects of people experience. And uh, as I said, delighted to welcome Melanie on the show today. So Katie, tell us a bit about Melanie. Sure, no worries. Thank you, Emma. So Melanie Franklin is on the show with us today. Melanie is a globally recognized thought leader in change management who's affected business change programs across public and private sector organizations based in the London, in London, UK, although not in London today, but we'll let her tell you more about that. Those of you watching the video will be able to tell that she's not in London from the weather behind her. Um, she's a director of Agile Change Management Limited and founder of the Continuous Change Community. She is chief examiner for the Agile Change Agent qualifications from APMG International and works for several professional bodies to help grow the consulting and change management professions. She's also the author of book Agile Change Management, which is a Kogan page book providing essential tools to build change manager capabilities and ensure change initiatives are embedded effectively throughout organizations. So, um, Emma, over to you to start asking, asking questions. So, Melanie, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, that was quite an introduction. You're clearly a, a very, very busy person. Is there anything that um, Katie didn't mention there that you think uh, our audience needs to know about you? Um, I think probably the thing I'd say is that during lockdown, I did the second edition of Agile Change Management. Um, so other people had baked banana bread and I had to write a second edition of a book. Um, but I think that also indicates that there are so many people interested in a more agile approach to managing change initiatives that it was probably a worthwhile way of doing things. Um, and I think that what I'm really keen to talk about today is perhaps how Agile change is a common sense approach to how we do things. Um, and it therefore is a mental health benefit because I was only thinking this morning when I walked the dog that if I weren't taking an agile approach to my workload right now, which thanks to Katie, I feel exhausted listening to that lot, um, <laughs> then I wouldn't, I just wouldn't be able to cope. And, and there are certain things about agile where you can sort of say it's iterative. Um, I'll do an early version. Let's get that out there and crossed off the to-do list. I can circle around a second time and add more to it later on, but at least I can get it out the door. Oh, that'll make me feel better. And also that more agile approach is um, don't, you can't plan everything up front. So just keep your ear to the ground, hear what else needs to be done. Just keep building that into all the things you've got to do. Um, so there is an, an innate flexibility to that which I think with the way the world is right now is incredibly sensible and maybe the thing that we need to focus on the most. Yeah, no, thank you for that. Um, and it really interesting, you, you wrote your second edition during, uh, during lockdown. I, I, um, I, I, feel, I feel your pain there. We, uh, 
I wrote, I co- co-authored a book with a colleague of, of mine during lockdown as well. So uh, you know, say I'd, I'd rather have been write, breaking banana bread, really, because I don't find writing easy. But anyway, I, I feel your pain there, Melanie. OK, so agile change management. So um, agile is or has been for quite a while, a, a bit of a buzzword. But I think for a lot of people, it feels like a bit of a dark art. So first of all, I suppose, you know, how would you explain agile to the uninitiated? And secondly, what do you mean by agile change management? Okay, well, agile, I think let's keep the word in mind flexible um, so that we're open to change. That's the first thing. So an agile approach gets rid of, I've got to plan everything in detail up front. I've got to work out every requirement, everything that everybody wants, and then organize all the work and then deliver on that plan. Because, of course, while all that's happening, the world's changing around us and half the things that people wanted have now become obsolete. And there's a load of other things that they haven't yet mentioned that they definitely want. So the only way to stay sane with all of that is to say, well, maybe a more agile approach would be I've got an idea of the bigger change I want to make. So, for example, I'm working with an HR team who are actually going to become a more strategic function within the organization. And therefore, they're going to be transferring a lot more of the HR day to day activities down through the line and into to staff. Well, we've got that idea. But which chunk shall I do first? What would make the biggest shift towards that big goal? Let's do that first. See how that lands. And then we'll come back and do the next bit and the next bit after that. Um, so I think it's that piecemeal piece. I know that there's an awful lot of sort of views of there's agile methodologies. You know, are you a certified scrum master? Have you taken your agile PM from the agile business consortium? And they're all great methodologies, but agile is much more of a way of thinking and mm. organizing your work than it is a methodology. So yeah. don't let that sort of take you off course and don't make it feel like it's some big secret language that you have to use actually most of us are agile in our everyday lives it's just applying that kind of thinking of I'll do a little bit see how it lands and then I'll move on to the next version of it the next update um, and move forward so my progression is sort of incremental Mm. and that enables me to sort of keep moving forward and responding to everything that changes around me. So I think that is the agile approach. It is definitely a way of doing things. Mm. But it comes with challenges because even on my dog walk this morning, it was a case of, right, I'll get that early version out, see how it lands, see what the feedback is. But agile can give you a kind of stomach ache, which is, oh, but if I just held on for a couple more days and I found an extra hour and I did that and I perfected that, and there's the urge. And what you have to do, I think, with Agile is that you have to do two things. You have to step on your perfectionist tendencies because this is not the moment for them. And the second thing is you have to learn to live with the risk that some people might come back and be a little bit rude about the fact it's not completely perfect. And you have to say, yeah, but actually I got it to you early so that you could get early involvement and early ownership Mm. rather than it being perfect. But I've worked like this for 15 years and the stomachache doesn't go away (laughs) because we all want to be that magical perfectionist person. 
yeah no I love that I, lo- I love your honesty there that's that's really helpful and I was just um something that really resonated in there you're talking about the mindset the agile mindset um and I know it's something I mean we, we just one example from what we do we do a lot of work helping organizations develop employee personas and that has to be an iterative process and no matter how much we try to manage expectations around look this first version is not going to be it it's not going to be probably anywhere near and that's good because that will give us a really strong kind of direct direction in terms of where we need to go with it but still we get that that feedback you said about people being quite rude thinking well I'm you know this is what is this so I know in your book you talk you know it's quite a big chunk around managing stakeholders so what advice would you give to people to I guess to a deal with that feedback but also to sort of help managers expectations around the way this approach works I think what can worry people about a more iterative approach is it's almost like it's the wild west well um how long is this going to take then how long are we going to be involved in this and I think what we can do is we can we can set deadlines and we can then work back from that and say do you know what it's going to take us 10 weeks but what we're going to do is chunk that up into every couple of weeks we'll get we promise to have an, the next version up so that everybody can plan their diaries around whether or not they're reviewing that next version up or they're involved in creating it mm. but you can actually show people a pathway of progression because if i think if you say oh there's going to be lots of different versions that that would panic me yeah i think well have you got yourself organized but if you say there's a path to progression here we're going to do this then this then this then this and this is how the timeline's going to go then that gets everybody fairly calm um Mm. and sort of thinking oh well there is some structure behind this so there is a there's it's a way of working but Mm. there it can be backed up with quite a well-organized approach just because you don't plan everything in detail up front doesn't mean that you don't plan Mm. I think that's a battle to to win I think mm, definitely yeah and it's really interesting isn't it I think you know in my experience there are those people who really thrive under that sort of approach and go that sounds great and there are a lot of people out there in organizations we work with who absolutely are desperate for the detail that could be quite a challenge I think aren't it and I think the thing is I can say to you I can give you all the detail now but it will be the detail at this moment in time mm-hmm. yeah and if you tie me to that detail now then you are closing out the opportunity for further insights mm. and responding to circumstances that change mm. and it is I think being honest about putting those risks to people mm. I am never going to be the kind of person that says agile is the only way to do things because planning and and doing all of that detailed work in one big lump if you're really certain of what it is that you're creating and how to create it then that more traditional approach works well because it's like a hot knife through butter I know what I've got to do and I do this then this then this then this then this done it and if you've got that certainty then that is how to do things but increasingly I don't have that certainty I had a, um, a moment last weekend where I read a strategy, that a three-year strategy that had been pulled together in workshops from July and August last year, written up in September and launched from the 1st of October. It goes from the 1st of October to the 31st of March, then from the 1st of April through to the 31st of October and round again. So three, three years, basically, of the strategy. Mm-hmm. What horrified me 
also didn't surprise me was that when I reread the strategy from very clever people, and we put so much effort and so much evidence into this strategy, mm. do you know what? Nearly 20% of it is no longer valid. And we are only a few months into 2022. Yeah. Yeah. And if you do the extrapolation, if it changes every 20% every six months, then by the end of those three years, there'll be about 25% that we actually got right. And the other 75% would have gone. Mm. So 20% off 80% every time. <laughs> and you sort of, you start to see that and you think actually there is the reason why you want a more agile approach because what we thought was perfect in October is only sort of four-fifths perfect now um, and that 20% that's no longer right has been superseded already very informally mm. by understandings assumptions and discussions we've had so my thought at the weekend was mm, right okay we need to put in uh, a structure where we're we're actually debating that I need other people to have the same insight I've just had that we've changed 20% and this there's an agile approach to this strategy I mean and this strategy includes standards policies it in it, it includes how we treat staff I'm thinking whew, there's a yeah. career path in there somewhere yeah. I'm thinking okay we need everybody to be up to speed with the fact that the world's moved on more than we could ever have dreamed and I think that's a classic example of how agile works in practice, really. Yeah, love it. Thank you. This I'm definitely kind of going to take away some tips there in terms of the language used. Like, say something as simple as like, there's going to be loads of versions versus you're going to have lots of opportunity to get involved and help to iterate this. It's, it's a kind of, you know, it's just a great way of framing it, right? So I love that. I'm definitely going to take away a few of those tips there. Thank you. So um, agile change management then. So, so combining the agile iterative approach with change management. Talk to us a little bit more about how that actually feels in practice. I think the first thing is that it's looking at change is made of two, two big ingredients. One is tangible change where perhaps we agree a restructure, mm -hmm. but the behavior change is we want people working to their new reporting lines in their new roles. And so what we're doing with an agile change approach is we're saying look, there'll be wave after wave of these changes. We're going to change some of the teams over here mm. and we want that we're going to launch those changes first because for all sorts of reasons, those teams in that office would best to be go through this restructure first. And we need them to start working differently and seeing their role differently. And then we're going to roll that out to another office or another set of departments. Mm. So that's that ag agility piece. Mm. And I think with agile change, it basically just shows you that we are taking that iterative approach to how we make the combination of tangible and behavioral change happen. Mm. And after every wave, we've, we've really made a shift in capability in the organization. The organization can now do something it couldn't do before in a way it couldn't do it before. Might not be the whole organization in every process, but there is a there is a shift of capability for which we should start to see the benefits. And those benefits, there should be a stream of those because the next shift I make, then the next set of benefits start to come on stream and then the next one and then the next one. Yeah. So what you're doing is laying out a transformation timeline a change management plan, whatever you want to call it, 
and you're actually showing how we're going to achieve value for you shift mm. after shift not just oh we're moving all the deck chairs on the titanic mm. so it's connecting tangible change behavioral change and the realization of benefits in that sort of triumvirate and saying we're going to do that wave after wave after wave yeah that that really makes sense to me and you know when you start to open up that I guess that Pandora's box of the behavioral change piece I mean I, I'm, I'm actually have a background in, in behavior change psychology and yeah, again it goes back to managing expectations I guess but no matter how much you sort of speak to stakeholders and say look we just don't know how things are going to land and I I always use the example years ago when I was involved in um, an office move project which seemed like a really nice kind of quite you know quite a straightforward change project there's no such thing right and I've, I've worked on things like you know getting rid of final salary pensions that I thought were going to be awful actually they were they were okay they were okay I mean it's not a great great thing to take away people's benefits but the change itself went pretty smoothly and you got a yes vote. But the office move project was like a we're moving people from a, a porter cabin, well, load of porter cabins to a really swanky, shiny office in the city centre. We thought it'd be a really nice, easy change. And it absolutely kicked off because we were taking away people's uh, personal bins that sit under their desks and going to like a recycling. And it, no, nobody could have predicted that, right? No matter, you know, what your background, no one would have predicted, well, I would next time, but, you know, and we almost had industrial action over taking bins away. So I think, you know, what you're saying really resonates in terms of that agile approach and saying we just need to kind of, you know, a bit of planning, get out there, testing, see how things land with people. So um, take the bins away from a small group of people, get them into the building, get them sharing their stories about what the experience of being in the new building is and how they're actually coping without having personal bins and how the recycling system is working before you then roll it out to the next group and the next group. Mm-hmm. And it is. And, and therefore, we all know the value of early adopters, don't we? And, and how their real life stories can convince others and, and agile change is a way of reflecting all of those lessons learned and going, yeah, that would be really sensible. So let's do it for a small group. Um, let's maybe let that group volunteer, whoever wants to be part of this, let them go first. Then let's get them sharing their stories and maybe taking others with us. And we'll yeah. get to that sustainable level of more than maybe three quarters of the people are now actually working in the new way and totally on board with it. You know, it's that kind of thing. That's great. That's a really lovely example. Thank you for sharing that in terms of bringing that to life. I think that's great. And uh, just kind of going around in my head, really. Um, I mean, we use a lot of, well, we use design thinking in our kind of approach. And um, I guess there's a lot of parallels between um, ex- prototyping, experimentation, ideation, and, and what you're talking about here. Yes, it's the same thing. Mm. It's an agile change approach. Yeah. It's about do a little bit and see how it lands. What do we learn from it? Yeah. Oh, that was unexpected. That's gone better than I hoped. That was unexpected. That's not gone as well. Some of that's worked. Mm, oh, we're missing a piece, though. And it's all of that learning as you go. We've mm-hmm. always talked about the sort of the, the plan, do, review cycles. And that's, mm-hmm. again, agile change is just a label you can put across a lot of this behavior. It's yeah. not um, it's not anything complicated that we don't do. It's not learning a whole new set of skills. It's just doing stuff that we already know is a good idea. Just yeah. doing it more often. Yeah, I love that. I also come back to the point you made about, you know, the sort of language you choose, because, you know, we find that quite often we will not that's not fair sometimes we'll have a little bit of an allergic reaction to the word prototyping um so i think just kind of perhaps re-rebranding it 
uh, we're going to take an agile approach could could help with some stakeholders because some, yeah, so they sometimes have a bit of an allergic reaction to prototyping. Yep. Um, so you talked about these two elements of the tangible and the behavioural. Mm-hmm. So um, talk to us a bit more about the behavioural side of things. You write a lot about that in your book and it's really fascinating for me in my background. So um, what do we need to think about? Because I think that's the bit, again, the tangible stuff is like, okay, we get that. We get we're having an office move or we're you know, changing benefits, whatever it might be. But the behavioural side, what advice can you give practitioners to to really you know take a well take an agile approach to that and what do they need to think about when they look at the behavioral side of change what I did in the book was I put in a, a life cycle of behavioral change because actually psychologically we do go through these steps of you first need to get my interest my awareness mm. you've got to get me feeling good about the change mm-hmm. um, and if you do that then first of all I'm aware it's happening and I see that there's some relevance to me then I feel there are some benefits to this so I want to be a part of it and then I'm thinking okay how can I participate and once I've gone through that cycle of having a go trying it out changing how I work making my own new norms then I can start to enjoy the benefits of that and I put underneath all of that resilience emotional resilience because If at any time my commitment, my determination to keep going drops, then we've got an issue. Mm. And I wanted to give people lots of practical sort of neuro hacks about Mm. how how the brain works on that resilience, that bounce back rate to get us back up into the game, if you like. And it was all about you can read loads of these models going all the way back to the 1960s and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's observational psychology about how we react to change and onwards. But what concerns me is people describe a lot of that, but they don't then give me any clue. Yeah, but how do I actually get people interested or aware? How do I then turn that awareness into positivity? Mm. How do I then get them to participate? So it was all about creating we're just writing down really things that we know we actually you probably read some of that stuff in the book and go oh I do that and there'll be other stuff that's new to you going oh that's a new idea I'll try that because it's effectively it was a collaborative exercise where I'm just the author of um, putting in place lots of things that other people um, have done and I do a lot in my own workshops that I know works Mm. so practically how do you do stuff is what I wanted to do yeah no, that makes sense and actually that that again that really resonates we have a, a model we use called the adoption curve which exactly as you described takes people through that awareness understanding buying commitments um so I think that, that's really helpful and you know I, like you I'm, I'm sort of always passionate about sharing ideas to, basically to help the practitioner do the job they need to do so um yeah. interesting you know you, you mentioned already and I haven't ever thought of it this way I think it's really fascinating the fact that you know taking this approach actually can benefit your well-being you know you mentioned that right back at the beginning and I was like I've never thought of it like that and let's face it we could all do with a bit of that in the moment right so yeah. <laughs> coming out of COVID the pressure off yeah um, I am often given very large-scale changes to sort out and sometimes I just feel sick with the stress and the pressure of it all mm. and I go back to the original principles of agile which is all right okay you can't eat an elephant whole Mm. so just how are you going to chunk this up and let's concentrate on getting one of those chunks done because if they don't like the way you're working if they if you're not achieving the results that people are expecting if people are reacting badly to the change 
then it gives us a chance to regroup before we've spent too much money, invested too much time. We'll know up front pretty early. So there is a secret in this, I think. And, and to be honest, I think during COVID, there was also that chance to how am I going to cope with all the changes that are coming my way? Mm. Um, as any individual had from working from home, homeschooling, having partners working at home, the house being too full, trying to cope with Wi-Fi issues and holding meetings when somebody comes to the door. We've all had that, haven't we? And how do you cope with that? I think it is something about, okay, I'm going to do a little bit and then I'll do the next little bit. So just breaking things down into small steps Mm. and then just focus on the the thing that's in front of you right now let's get that done and then tomorrow let's prioritize it all again and find the next big valuable thing and I'll do that and then I'll redo it and I think there is something in there around feeling of okay right I'm actually focused on getting something done and Mm. there's a load of other stuff it's a load of noise and if I listen to it my imposter syndrome will go right off the scale and I'll convince myself I can't cope. So Agile says, put that aside, focus on the most valuable thing right now and get it done. And when yeah. you've got that done, then you can do the other stuff. And I think it's it's that, that it's that for me. And, and I will speak as somebody who has way too much on their plate. Um, it's why I'm being interviewed in my own garden in the <laughs> evening rushing through before I go on to a big meeting tonight um it's all about yeah just pick the bits that you can do and go on and I there's a calmness to it and there's an achievability piece to it Mm. that I think builds our resilience yeah I love that I think again that's really good advice and something that I'll definitely take away from this conversation because I absolutely can if, if we're taking on a, you know a big piece of work at the beginning it can feel really overwhelming when you've got to try to solve it all in one go you're thinking well we can't even answer the stuff further down the line because we we haven't got the insights yet so I think that's that's really really good advice thank thank you for that um you mentioned before about some neuro hacks and I know that you've, you know there's some positive psychology which we're a big fan of strength-based approach and there's kind of a lot of that in the book as well which I think mm-hmm. is a really great kind of meeting of some really practical kind of change management tools along with the psychology and the neuroscience and positive psychology so talk to us a little bit about some of the neuro hacks you mentioned before well, I think the first thing on the, from neuroscience, it, you can get into a, a, a very detailed sort of conversation. But I'm interested, again, in practical application. So what I know about neuroscience is how the brain responds to it. There's so much information that comes in at us. And you can read all sorts of studies about thousands of pieces of data that come at the brain every minute and how yeah. the brain just filters that down to a few key points that it's taking mm-hmm. on board. So how is the brain doing that filtering? Well, the brain has got some well-trammeled paths. It's got some filters that it uses. Um, And if you sort of start to think about what those filters are, you can start to work out a better way to engage and to communicate with people. For example, one of the the key filters is that um, if I feel that my autonomy is threatened, if I'm not in charge of my own destiny, then my resistance to the change goes up. Yeah, because we all like to be in charge of our own destiny. Why? Because it's a survival mechanism. You know, being in charge of of things for yourself means you're more likely to survive. It's a Mm -hmm. personal selfish thing. It's so hardwired. Okay, then maybe the best thing I can do is give you opportunities in this change where I ask you, how do you 
want to become involved in this change? What do you think the benefits are? How are you going to change your ways of working? So a really simple part of, of underlying mm -hmm. all of those sort of shortcuts is ask, don't tell. Yeah, and yeah it's, it's it. understanding how the brain sees the world and go, do you know what? Why don't we run along with that rather than fighting it? That mm. would be a good thing. Absolutely. No, I love that. I think that sounds great. And we're all, we're all about involvement here. So that, that absolutely resonates with us. And um, there's a couple of sort of, um, I guess, tools or ideas you share in the book, which I was really fascinated by. I want to pick out a few of those if, if I yeah. can. So connection maps. Yep. Talk to us about connection maps. Really interesting. I'd love you to just explain what they are and how we use them. Well, I think the thing is we there are so many stakeholders these days and they keep changing. Yeah. And um, half the people that we're working with, we probably ne never met in person now. We're yeah. two years into this pandemic, right? Um, so I need to connect with Katie, let's say. I've never met Katie face to face and I don't know much about Katie, And I, but I want Katie to change her way of working. Mm. Now, actually, maybe I need to connect with somebody who knows you Emma who and then Emma and Katie have a good relationship so I then maybe ask my friend to pass on to Emma some of the key things connect with Emma and Emma to connect with Katie I don't go direct to Katie she doesn't know me she won't listen to me there's no connection there but what I can do is identify those people that are in my sphere of influence mm. and is any one of those got any connection with somebody who might be in Katie's sphere of influence and can I connect the dots from there? Mm. It sounds like I'm going around the houses and I'm certainly not saying that we should do this for every um, stakeholder engagement we want. But sometimes it is better to go through the back door mm. by other people. And it's just mapping that out and going, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, no, I love that. It's a really, really good example. Katie, have you, have you got any questions? We sort of sat there listening. Any, anything from you? Yeah, there's a couple of things, really. Um, one one kind of follows on from the other. So the, the first one, um, you got my mind wearing when, we were, when you're talking about strategies and how the strategy that had been developed um, by the time it actually got the first couple of months through into the year was already out of date. It, it wasn't as relevant as it had been before. Now, obviously, a lot of organisations do like to have these kind of like five year plans where that's communicated out. So would your advice be to still have those kind of big picture uh, five year plans, um, but then iterate them more frequently? Or, or would you say that actually you almost need to stop stop doing these five year plans and instead let's let's look at, you know, we, we've got that, our vision in terms of where we want to go to, but let's concentrate on chunking that up as well. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we still need everybody needs a future. I was actually asked what my 10 year plan was recently um, and I, it made me think. And I actually turns out I did have it in my head. I, I do have an understanding of what I want to achieve in this decade. I hadn't really thought about it, but it was there. I've got the bigger picture. But do I have a plan of that? No, I have a plan for this year and I have some priorities for next year. But anything further than that in, in terms of planning is a complete waste of my effort. Because by the time we hit 2024, how will the post-COVID world look? Well, mm. none of us have got a clue, have we? So it would be a waste of my time to try to work out what I'd be doing or who I'd be doing it with or even how. But I have got some aims and goals um, over the next few years. And I've, I've definitely got a plan I'm working through this year. And this year is just flying by already. 
Um, and I've got some sort of stakes in the ground of things that I want to achieve next year. And, and that's as far as my sort of decomposition's gone. I've, I've broken that, that goal down into smaller pieces, but that's where it is. And I think where we waste time in organisations is when we are doing huge amounts of detailed budgeting and business cases for the five year plan. And I'm thinking, heavens, this is I mean, it looks good because it's all there in an Excel spreadsheet, but actually it's all rubbish, rubbish in, rubbish out. Mm. All we've done is we've tied it up with a nice bow and put some sort of calculations into to Excel. But all the data is a, a massive guess, finger in the air. And, there, and we then build on that. And of course, by the time we put it in there, it starts to feel real. And then we're surprised when it doesn't turn out like that. I'm thinking, we're mad. That's not how the world works. So maybe an agile approach is maybe a little bit closer to common sense mm. than, you know, there's no real dark art to it. As Emma said earlier, it's just about being sensible and not overreaching in your your promise of certainty mm, yeah definitely and it, it comes back to to the fact I think for a lot of people it's it's the way we've always done things we've all we've always done a five-year plan we've always we've always done it that way and, and all of a sudden it's 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 slightly new ground for a lot of people to to be more iterative in their approach to to the things they do mm. um no thank you that was really interesting um and kind of following on from that my, my second question is around the communication of agile. Um, now, I, I imagine that a lot of your, your stakeholders are the kind of senior leaders and the drivers behind this, but I'm really interested on your take on the impact of how that's then communicated to those people on the front line. So two examples, what, one being the strategy, you know, it, we, we can talk about the vision, but if, if we're still kind of making those plans up, you've got these people saying, oh, I don't feel informed, no one's telling me what's going on, they're keeping it secret, what does that mean? Um, but also to the point that you made around restructure, you know, we're going to see how this goes, we don't really know what it's going to look like for that next bit yet. So we know that the communication approach works sort of post that by people sharing their experiences and um, like you mentioned, you know, sharing the great stories from those early adopters to kind of help push it forward. But what about for those people that are still like, well, I don't really know what's going to happen to me. What they, they must know. They must know exactly what's going to happen. Why are they keeping it a secret? I think there is something there about courageous leadership, being able to actually come out and say, we know so much, but we don't know everything. But based on our assumptions, these are some of the things we're going to try out right now. What we do have certainty about is we can say, look, these are our values. These are what we hold dear in this organization. And this is what we're trying to be. We don't know exactly how it's going to work out in detail, but because these are our values, this is how we're going to treat you. And because this is where we're trying to get to in the, the bigger picture over the next few years or the next decade, these are some of the things we're going to try now. Um, and we'll, there are plenty of opportunities for you to share your own feedback of how that's working and what else you think we should be doing. It's a far more collaborative leadership style than me pretending that I have all the answers and I'm just, you know, I'm going to tell you exactly what's going to happen. And that just doesn't ring true anymore. But what I've just outlined there is that ability to suppress the, the need to give you lots and lots of detail because 
I find that comforting and you might find it comforting when both of us know that actually that detail probably won't last more than a few months. Mm. It's really interesting. I was just reflecting there that and, and, and it will be obvious to you, Melanie, and I'm probably very late to the party, but I suppose going through COVID is kind of like agile change management in, in practice, right? Where we did, and I, I mean, we sort of said, you know, is it, it's been and it continues to be a, you know a very challenging time for a lot of people and we've all been affected by it but I think one of the interesting kind of uh, I suppose silver linings was that it kind of leveled the playing field and that nobody there's no playbook for this nobody knew the answers we had to get comfortable with ambiguity we had to get comfortable with being courageous in our leadership and saying I just don't know I don't know what's going to happen I don't know when we're going to be coming back to the office I don't know if we're going to have jobs at the end of this and getting a bit more comfortable with that have you have you seen that um has it had an impact on perhaps the way you're able to kind of sell in agile change management or the acceptance of it? Is it helped? Yeah, I think there has been a, a great recognition that um, an agile change approach is more, much more around common sense. And actually, there is a you're absolutely right. A lot of people I can easily take them back to um, the I kept extensive notes um, throughout the the first sort of six months where we said things like, I remember being in a, in a conversation with a world sports body um, who were talking about putting their fixtures back on from the end of June. Um, and this was at the end of April. And I said, well, South Korea have talked about opening up from September, but they have, they've already, you know, they've got a very um, structured lockdown policy and that's why they think they'll be able to do it by then I mean we look back now and think how naive that was yeah um, and so I can take people through so there was that wave where we thought oh well we might be able to get things back in by September then I don't know if you remember we had all the stuff about in um, January 2020 when oh we'll all be back in January 2021 um, and there was a lot of disquiet in September 2020 when we said oh a lot of people aren't opening their offices until January January oh isn't that a bit late and of course we all know what happened next Mm. Um, and we're still not back yet so it doesn't take long for any of us to Mm. sit back for just a moment and I did actually publish lots of things about creating the new normal in like the autumn of 2020 when that was the phrase yeah before the new normal became hybrid working as we now refer to it Um, but it was a case of there's lots of examples where we stumbled and had to regroup Mm. So actually, we've been living an agile change journey for the last couple of years, um, but it has enabled us to navigate through as if mm. we'd stuck to our guns and said, this is what we're going to do. Well, yeah. legally, we wouldn't have been allowed to because there were lockdowns or um, our staff would have rebelled because they didn't feel safe. So we've had to roll with it each time. Um, yeah. And that's enabled us to amend certain circumstances while still getting on with business. Isn't that the agile change way, you know? Absolutely. No, it's really interesting. I know um, when, um, as I said, Belinda and I were writing um, our employee experience by design book through through COVID, well, the first lockdown. And we've been working in this field for a number of years, lots of training developments on it. And, you know, one of the big drivers for focusing on your your experience and your employee experience is around um, employee retention. It's one of the key kind of business drivers. And we were questioning when we started writing the book, we were saying, well, is it still a business driver? Because suddenly we're in COVID and there's, you know, half the world's been furloughed and, you know, but we kind of thought, well, we don't want to make too many rash conclusions here because we just don't know. So we kind of left it in there. We debated long and hard. And then, of course, 
you know, where are we at now? The great resignation. So suddenly, yes, it is. Still, so that's, you know, so it really resonates because you can kind of think, well, which way do we jump here? Let's just kind of keep an open mind and sail with this and see where it goes. So um, yeah. that really resonates. Um, you're going to change tack slightly. Um, you do talk about this in your book. It comes back to the book. But um, really interested, you know, we can have this brilliant agile change management approach, but what role does culture play and, and how can culture either enable an agile change manager, management approach or really get in the way of it? I think there is something around culture for me, um, going back to my old Von Trompenaar's work years ago, is those core beliefs, those basic assumptions that underpin how we behave around here. And mm-hmm. I think there is something about resetting some of those not just for a post-COVID world, but also many CEOs are now driven by the need, not just for operational efficiency, but also for innovation. Mm. So I think we we need to put in some core beliefs around anybody can have a good idea, mm. um, that actually everybody has the responsibility for doing their day job and identifying ways that that day job can be improved. Mm. So I think there are things about resetting the culture um, for for this decade, which is about building in sort of flexibility, personal responsibility and involvement. So I I do think there is some cultural resetting that we could probably all benefit from. Um, I know I've been working with clients about re-baselining what does their culture what is it now? Because they've had lots of people join and lots of people leave over the last two years who've never physically met or those new joiners haven't met. And therefore, they're bringing in all the, their new assumptions. So I think, first of all, I think it is really important to re-baseline your culture. And secondly, I think you can look at some of those core beliefs and think, do they support more agility? Do they support more flexibility? Do they support more collaboration? Do they support bringing in new ideas, trying things out? You use the word prototyping, but experimenting or, you know, so does that reflect, do, do some of these core beliefs reflect how we want to be working in the future? Yeah. So I'm just going to pick up on something you said there. You, you talked about personal accountability and that's something we're really interested in, um, the work that we do in terms of, you know, absolutely the organisation should do everything in its power to help to facilitate a great experience at work, which is the area we're working in engagement. But also we talk a lot about our personal uh, accountability and mindset for how we show up at work. So really interested to hear you talk about personal accountability when it comes to culture. So a- any other thoughts on that? Because I think it's quite a new, I haven't heard many people talk about that. So I'm quite interested in your views on that. I think the world of work is changing and I think that maybe what COVID has done is make us make more direct choices. Do I want to work here? Um, Do I want to work in this way? Now this isn't for everybody and so there is some luxury here Mm. but um, certainly in the service industry there is an awful lot of people deciding whether or not they want to work for that organisation and I think Therefore, we can within the organization say, right, okay, we know it's been a choice. We know that you've chosen to stay with us. Um, And therefore, you know, we want to expand your remit, your your autonomy, if you like, to say it's not just that you do the day job, but it's also that you have a a seat at your own table for Mm. designing how that works in the future. So we want everybody to take on 
that responsibility for making change happen around here. So there is something about the democratization of the responsibility for change. Change isn't going to be done to you. You are going to be a part of the force that does change for yourself. Do you want that responsibility? Mm. There's the conversation. No, I, I love that. And that's, I say that really resonates because we've, we've just um, started looking at, you know, the mindset, um, the role it plays in the experience you have at work. So I think it's really interesting. We should continue this conversation another time for sure. Definitely very yeah. interesting. And I say not really hearing many people talk about that. I think it's a little bit of a, a fear that it sort of takes the onus from the organisation and it's all about, it's almost like kind of a, not victim blame, but almost like the individual's like, well, if you don't have a great experience at work and you're not engaged, it's, it's, it's your own fault. And that's not obviously not what we're saying. And I know it's not what you're saying, but we're saying, how can we help people to develop the right skills? So things like resilience, you know, we know resilience is going to help you have a better, better time at work, right? Because when it does get tough, you're going to cope with it better. So there's an obvious one there, but interesting what else could help you to, uh, you know, as you said, to take ownership of the change in, in a way that you can have that autonomy. So it's a really interesting conversation. I do um, think I might... that with personal responsibility, you have to match it with resilience because resilience is the determination to keep going when the going gets tough. And I think if you want to expect people to take greater personal responsibility, then what we as organisations owe people is the, the development opportunities in building their own emotional resilience. Yeah. I think um, you can't have one without the other. I could not agree more. Absolutely. And I think what's resilience is, is is kind of a no-brainer but we're really interested in what what else what other skills can we you know um help our people develop to, to cope with change to, to improve their experience whatever it might be so yeah definitely worth a further conversation i'm mindful of time melanie and i know you've got a very very busy evening so um final question so the new book was out or the second edition i should say the second edition was out last year what were the kind of key updates to that edition what were the new bits you included in that edition much more on behavioral change so there was an entire chapter dedicated to all of those neuro hacks those brain shortcuts 41 new practical techniques across the five steps of the behavioral change life cycle uh, interest positivity participation enjoyment and underpinned by resilience so 41 different activities. Um, and I've sort of turned that into a, a two day course. And uh, to say it's one of the most popular things I've ever done is is very much an understatement, which goes back to explaining why I've never got any time to do anything else. <laughs> Amazing. Well, that sounds absolutely fascinating. Um, so, yeah, on that note. So, yeah, what I loved about the book was, yeah, like you say, the, the real practical side to it, because we know that, you know, people we work with, they, they I mean, we love a bit of theory. We love the evidence base, but actually most people work with that. Yeah, that's great. But just translate this into action for me. Tell me what I need to do. And I know you, you'll have baked the cleverness into that, which you've done in the book. So really practical book. Absolutely loved it. So thank you. Thank you so much for your time today, Melanie. Um, really appreciate it. And um, yeah, just just keep in touch because I'd love to, to hear more about the work you're doing. Um, is there anything that, you know, you wanted to um profile any courses you're running or any um you know make a pe- people obviously buy the book from amazon and Coke and page can't they and and yeah. any other resources you wanted to point people to well the book is the set text for the agile change agent two-day course and the agile change coach which is that neuro hacks course so if you book either of the courses you get the book anyway um but also the courses are about collaboratively trying out all of those techniques with other people on the course and having a go at things um so yeah it, i think that's why it, it's been so popular so and i'm proud to be the uh, chief examiner of the agile change agent qualification so 
come and get me come and find me and let's talk about how you build those skills really because these are essential life skills if we're going to be successful at work in this decade absolutely and i think that's a that's a brilliant note to end on so once again thank you melanie for your time and um, yeah enjoy the rest of your evening thank you you so much it's been lovely to meet you and those people that are watching today um if you have subscribed we will make sure that we include links to the books to the courses um so if you're not a subscriber make sure you subscribe rather than just watch the videos because otherwise you miss out on all the extra content that we like to share afterwards um thank you again melanie it's been a real pleasure really really fascinating today and i think we probably could have kept you all evening if you weren't so busy (laughs) so (laughs) thank you very much been a pleasure. Thanks.